This is the word of the Lord. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Blessed be the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Our gracious Father, as we come to you this morning, we are prepared to embark upon a new book, a book that exalts the majesty of Christ. It is one that is so desperately needed today and has always been needed by your church. But especially in a day and age where we seem to have lost the depth of understanding of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God of very God, who humbled himself, taking on the form of a man, living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we deserved. You resurrected him from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven. And now he stands as our high priest. And one day he will come back for his church. And we will celebrate at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, it appears that we often overlook that the solution to all of our stresses, to all of our challenges, to all of our circumstances has to do directly with our understanding of the object of our faith. Forgive us, Lord, for having such an anemic view of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for being so willing to remain in ignorance, to simply know stories, maybe a few verses, instead of plumbing the depths of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we want to repent of that today, and we want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance by studying this book in depth and making every passage an opportunity and an exercise in worship of His great name. Who is up to this task. Lord, it is, it is not I. This is overwhelming. How do you do justice to a text that is so centered on our Lord Jesus Christ, on His ontology, on His work, on redemption, on His ministry, for us. And so, Father, it is with great trepidation that I enter into this series, 
And yet I am committed and we are committed as the body of Christ to know more so that our worship is deeper. And that the fragrance that arises into your nostrils is that much sweeter. Father, be pleased with our sacrifice. Be pleased with our efforts. May I, as Israel said, cut it straight. And may we worship together in these coming weeks and months and even years, no matter how long it takes us. May we devour this book. And may it sit sweetly in our stomach. May it increase our faith. And may you be glorified in all that we do. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, a special thanks goes out to Char Sadly for pushing me into this. I've avoided preaching the book of Hebrews now for 15 years. And it took her insistence and several key lime pies to make it happen. But I'm excited. It's worth it. I was speaking to my former pastor a couple weeks ago. And I said, well, I took the summer studying 2 Timothy, which I had preached uh, 11 years ago, in order to buy a little more time to study the book of Hebrews before I preached it. And now I find it's time and I'm not ready. What do I do? And he said, you got to pull the trigger. you got to do it. Wipe everything off your calendar. Bury yourself. But get started on this book. And I tell you, I am so thankful for that counsel. Because when I got into it, I mean, literally, the majesties of our Lord Jesus Christ just come into view. And I'm sure you've experienced that if you spent this last week spending your quiet time in Hebrews. Certainly, it's difficult to understand. Certainly, it might be challenging to understand why the author is going this direction or that direction, but you cannot miss the majesty of Christ. Amen? It, it's just, it's amazing. And, I'm, and I found myself a bit ashamed. Why don't I think deeply about our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ? Why is it that, that I don't push myself to understand more about who he is and what he has done and seeing that as a direct connection to the, the veracity and strength and endurance of my faith. Because if you're like me, I find my faith is weak oftentimes and it is, is struggling. And right before me on the pages of Scripture is this wonderful book of Hebrews that is beckoning me to come and say, read, understand. Strengthen your faith by understanding our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if I have any regrets, I wish I had stumbled through it in the, in the second or third year of my pastorate instead of the 15th year. Because at least stumbling through it, I think, would have, would have enlightened me as to, I just keep using this word, but it's the majesty of Christ. Well, let's dive into it together. Today is going to be an overview. 
Uh, feel free to take notes, but if you don't want to, that's fine. I'll give you a copy of mine. It might be good to write down references so you see patterns. But I wanted us to do an overview. I want us to see how this fits together. And I want us to really understand the, the application that it will have to our own lives. So who's the author, right? I mean, that's the big question. You're probably looking through your study Bible and you're saying, well, you know, Paul usually uh, takes ownership of his letters, but, but why nothing here? And that has been a question for century, even millennia, though there has not been a want of suggestions. Was it Paul? Was it Barnabas? Was it Apollos, Silas, Aquila, or Priscilla, even Clement of Rome? I have my opinion, and it's worth about as much as that free coffee you got this morning. So I'll keep it to myself right now. Clearly, it was the Holy Spirit's intention to keep this an anonymous work. And I think for good reason. I like what Origen, the church father, said in the third century. Only God knows who wrote Hebrews. But the audience, that's a little clearer. If you've read through it, you know that it has a, a heavy Jewish tone. It has a lot of Hellenistic prose. What you may not realize is that with all of the quotes in the Old Testament, they are from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament text, which indicates that this was probably uh, Jews who had become believers but were outside the land of Palestine. They were part of the diaspora and had been for centuries. Many believe that they were actually believing Jews who lived in Rome. Chapter 13, verse 24 says, those from Italy greet you. Almost like, like, hey, I'm with a bunch of Italians who are from your hometown and they're sending greetings back home. I think that's a real possibility. Also, we know that it's probably not uh, Jews living in Palestine because in chapter 12, verse 4, it says, you have not resisted to bloodshed. And of course, we know that there was quite a bit of persecution in and around Jerusalem. As far as the date, well, it has to be before A.D. 95 because Clement, the bishop of Rome, uh, references a quotation in a letter in A.D. 95 from Hebrews. He quotes it. But I think it's even before that. It has to be before even A.D. 70 because what happened in A.D. 70? What was destroyed? The temple by Titus Vespasian. Surely a, a Jewish-flavored letter like this would have mentioned the temple being destroyed. So I think a, a safe date is probably somewhere between 64 and 68 A.D. And what we have here is Jewish believers who've come out of Judaism. They've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, but now there's pressure perhaps even a measure of persecution from their own people groups, for sure. And perhaps elsewhere, they're feeling the temptation to return back to Judaism. Maybe, maybe we, uh, we bought into this deal a little soon. Maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Maybe he was just another great prophet. 
kind of miss the whole high church feeling of Judaism. I miss the rituals. I miss the traditions. I miss going to temple. Whatever it is, it's all converging on these Jewish believers, and they want to go home. They want to go home. And this letter is one of encouragement and exhortation not to drift away, but to stay the course. Let me say that again. Not to drift from the true faith, but to stay the course. And so rather than taking it from me, let's do a fly over the book and let's see if that's true. I'm going to reference several passages here. Let's focus on this warning not to let your heart drift away. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Chapter 3, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Chapter 3, verse 10. And said, they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12, the same chapter. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 15, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 4, verse 7, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 6, verse 6, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Chapter 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Heavy, heavy warnings. Don't let your heart grow hard and drift away. Do not drift, drift, drift away. Now listen to this pattern. Chapter 3, verse 6. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Chapter 7, verse 19. There is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 25 of the same chapter. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Chapter 10, verse 1. Make perfect those who draw near. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Did you hear the difference there? Hard heart, sincere heart. Drift away draw near. And then, of course, the famous verse, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. If I know nothing else, a cursory reading of this book tells me that the original audience is in danger of drifting away from the faith. And that drifting away from the faith has serious consequences. And so there is this warning. Do not let your heart drift away, but instead draw near and hold fast. 
Don't drift away, but draw near and hold fast. And then I have in my notes here, or else what? Or else what? So are, are you telling me these warnings are for real, Pastor? Because I kind of like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Can I get a, a collective amen there? Those are the verses we like. The warning passages, not so much. Former seminary professor who discipled me, who I love dearly, I am here today because of him, used to tell me, Rod, do you know the secret to preaching Hebrews? No, 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 what is it? He said, ignore the warning passages. Like, I can't. I know what you're trying to say, but I, I can't. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. If that's true, and we know that it is, then I have a question for you. How can these warnings be real? Are you feeling the tension? Good. It's okay to feel the tension, and yet we are not going to explain away God, nor minimize the greatness of His salvation. To be honest, this is why so many commentators and preachers take the teeth out of this book, or why they spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out who the audience is. Is it believers? Is it unbelievers? Is it mixed crowd? Is it this, that? And they try to explain everything away. Hold on to that thought, and we'll come back to it. In 2014, John Piper rattled the evangelical world with this statement. Quote, election is unconditional. Glorification is not. So the certainty of the elect rests on God's enabling. Let me say that again. Election is unconditional. Glorification is not. People literally freaked out. Why? Because we're good Protestants. And we believe in once saved, always saved. Right? But what he was saying was biblical. And what he was pushing back against was 150 years of easy believism that came out of the Second Great Awakening which was neither second nor great. We had reduced the doctrine of eternal security to a pithy saying of once saved, always saved, and yet that's true. But there was nothing underneath it. It was just this, this saying that kind of floated in the air that we used. And we all held to, even if we just walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a card, got dumped. The fact is, is that justification is all of God. And yet glorification is conditional. Am I saying that you're saved by faith plus works? Absolutely not. But a genuine believer will pursue holiness. Not perfectly but progressively. We are not saved by faith plus works, but by faith that works. Hebrews 12, 14. 
Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let me give you the full definition of once saved, always saved from the Westminster Confession. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Genuine faith, saving faith, perseveres. The faith that God gives you at salvation, and it is a gift from God, God gives it to us, we do not give it to Him. That's Ephesians 2. The genuine faith that God gives is the same faith that gives the believer the ability and the unction to persevere to the end. Do believers fall into sin? Yes, they do. Do believers repent? Yes, they will. God disciplines whom he loves. The grace that saves us is the grace that will persevere through us. So what we have here is the same way a pastor preaches each Sunday. I'm preaching to believers, right? Because you profess to be believers. And yet I'm not so naive as to believe that every single person in here is a believer. And so like a coach that is, is coaching his team, hey, you're on the team? That's great. Here's what we do when we're on the team. But if you don't show up for practice and you don't show up for the game, then you never really were on the team. They went out from us, 1 John 2.19, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. So I don't have to figure out the audience. It's two professing believers. But the author is saying, but if you go back to Judaism, if you punt the faith, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not that you lost your salvation, it's that you never had it. And so therefore the warnings are real and should put just a measure of fear into each one of us that genuine faith perseveres. But it is that same fear that provides the greatest comfort. Because who does the persevering? God. Philippians 2, 11 and 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is, what? God who is at work in you. To will and to work for His good pleasure. And so, we've got to read this as a sermon. There's this tremendous exaltation of the superiority of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Saying, whatever you're thinking about turning back do you realize how great our king is? That's what's coming through. And so it's this word of encouragement. Stay the course. Stay the course. Don't drift away. Draw near. But if, if you do, realize you, 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 weren't, you weren't really a believer. I want us to think about these, these commands for a moment. Drifting away and drawing near. 
or holding fast. I like that one. You've probably seen pictures or read stories about how for centuries uh, sailors tattoo on their knuckles, hold fast. Aaron, you got that on your knuckles? Yeah. You were an underwater guy, okay? That phrase is actually uh, from the Dutch. Houd vast. Houd vast. Sounds like that, right? It means to hold tight. And it means specifically hold on with all your might to the ship's rigging when storms come. So I get that picture. It makes sense. That in combination with do not drift away. It's that, that nautical feeling. But holding fast is really only half the equation because holding fast to the ship's rigging does not prevent the ship from drifting off course, right? What that ship really needs during times of difficult and inclement weather is an anchor. It needs an anchor. Write down Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This is what this book is about. This hope we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This hope is an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast in which one enters within the veil. If you're looking for a theme, and this might be overly simplistic, but staying the course by understanding the superiority of Christ. And that applies to every single one of us. Staying the course by understanding the superiority of Christ. You think all of us are weak in our faith on occasion? Do you think many of us have been tempted to question why? Why, why am I doing all this? Why is this happening to me? Is this all really worth it? We'd be naive to think that there aren't times when if we're honest about our faith, it's, it's probably embarrassing and at the very least ungrateful to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the author understands that. He understands our weaknesses. And so what he's going to bring to bear is not intellectual doctrine for just doctrine's sake, but it's doctrine that produces doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What is doxology? It means to praise, doxa, glory. What we're going to learn about our Lord Jesus Christ is not only who He is, what He has done, but how He ministers in our stead. How He understands our weaknesses. How He has endured what we have endured. And how He will never leave us nor forsake us. You're going to see this picture of high priest over and over and over again. And if you're a Jew, this resonates with you. What is their desire to do? I want to go back to temple. I miss being at the synagogue. I miss the festivals. I want to go back to temple. I want to see that priest offer sacrifices for me. I mean, think about that. We like to talk about our faith, but what we really crave is what we can see. I want to see 
that high priest. Take that sheep. Offer it for me. Here's my money. I did this. I feel good about myself. I had Passover. You name it. It makes us feel good, but the book here says, then why do you have to do it again next year? Jesus, he is the ultimate high priest. And we're going to see that picture over and over and over again. And if you're a Jew reading this, boy, you're confronted that the very thing I want doesn't hold a candle to the ultimate high priest. Just a side note here. You know why I'm so excited about this book? You know if you've been here any length of time, you know how much I love the Old Testament. I love the narratives. I love the richness. I love the typology. I get it all here. I don't have to look through some book for illustrations. Oh, how am I going to explain this and illustrate? The author does it for us. Time and time again, we have Old Testament illustrations. And then we have this New Testament fulfillment of how Christ is better, better, better. And that word's used over and over again. Staying the course by understanding the superiority of Christ. Just a little biblical counseling here. If we will get in the habit as believers of going to the fountainhead of truth, when we have issues, even when we don't understand the direct connection, I'm stressed about this, or finances, or health, or my job, or, or, or relationships, or whatever else. If before we look for pragmatic answers, or try to find verses that will, you know, we can rip out of context, if we will learn to go to the fountainhead of truth, the person and work of Jesus Christ, a lot of this is going to dissipate. Specifically, when our faith is weak and drifting, the answer is not to get all the answers. The answer is to draw near. The application here is timeless. If you're looking for a few verses that really encapsulate the book, turn with me real quickly. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Jeff read it earlier. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, what? What's that picture again? Hold fast our confession. What is our confession? Confession, the object of our faith, person and work of Jesus Christ. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore let us, what? Draw near. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. What is grace? The power of God to save a man, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. To help in our time of need. This book is going to be our go-to book. I'm telling you, this week, you're going to find your faith weak at some point. You're going to be tempted to sin at some point. You're going to be tempted to say, I want to just operate in the flesh. I don't care what the Bible says. You're going to be tempted to even 
forsake the assembling together, perhaps. Because I know if I'm around people, I'm going to be convicted. And I don't. You draw near. You draw near to the throne of grace and watch what the Lord does. Well, the book can be divided into two sections. Again, I'm a simple guy, so we keep it simple here. Doctrinal and practical. Doctrinal and practical. Doctrinal goes from verse 1 all the way through chapter 10, verse 19. It's about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The practical starts 1019 and goes through the end of chapter 13. We are going to see over and over again Christ be exalted. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. His work is better than what we see in the temple and the sacrifice. But then he's going to get extremely practical. And he's going to call us to do more than just conceptualize drawing near. He's going to say, no, 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 no. Here's what drawing near means. Here's what holding fast looks like. But he's not going to just leave it with a set of commands. He's going to give us pictures and illustrations. Pictures where we can look at people and say, oh, and that guy was in a really tough situation. And he was really faithful. Even though he was really a failure a lot of times. I can get on board with this, right? Hall of Faith. It's incredibly encouraging. Let's run through it real quickly. Doctrinal. Doctrinal is understanding the superiority of Christ. And in parentheses, you might just put person and work. We're always going to put person and work together. Why, why am I saying that? Well, theologically, think about it. Your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. You don't save yourself. You know, we say, I got saved. Well, I understand what we mean, but it is our Lord Jesus Christ who saves us. So the object of our faith means we have to have the right Jesus. The Mormons don't have the right Jesus. Are we all okay with that? In Mormon theology, if you can call it that, Jesus was created. It's the wrong Jesus. He may have the name Jesus. It might as well just be Jesus. It's different. It's not the saving king of kings. They also have the wrong work. And many denominations have the wrong work. Jesus did not die as an example for us on the cross. He died as a substitutionary atonement. The two things that make our faith valid, that secure salvation, have to do with the object of our faith. When we repent of our sin, turn from our sin and self-worship, and place our faith in Jesus Christ, it is a transfer of allegiance from I'm worshiping self to I'm worshiping God of very God, who died in my place and absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. Now, you may not understand all the depth of, depths of substitutionary atonement. You may not understand how the hypostatic union works or the Trinity. Children can become believers. But what are the two things they have to understand about Christ? Who he is and what he did. So that's what the author is going to focus on. If I can deepen your understanding, or in this case, if I can correct these Jewish believers' understanding of who Jesus is and what he did, then genuine faith will draw near and hold fast. A counterfeit faith will reject it 
and say, I do not believe he was God. He was just a good prophet. Or I do not believe that his death on the cross was necessary. Can you see the application for today? It's, it's just amazing. Well, he begins straight away by talking about how Christ is superior to the prophets in verses 1 through 3. He's making this connection with their former life in Judaism. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So if I'm a Jew and I want to go back, I revere the prophets. He's made a connection with me. Hey, we all agree that God has spoken to us his word, spoken his word through the prophets. But understand in these last days, Jesus is not a prophet. He's God's own son. And so as he pushes them to stay the course, what he's saying here basically is the same God who spoke to your fathers through the prophets has now sent his own son. And his own son is God, a very God. It's the same God of Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. He is one. Yes, and that is Jesus Christ And in the event that that's not enough, he explains that he was not only appointed heir, but this is so important, through whom he also made the world. The author of Hebrews says, hey, you know about this Redeemer, Jesus. Do you also realize that he was the creator? That Genesis 1-1, it was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who spoke the universe into existence. Ex nihilo, out of nothing he created. This would blow any Jew's mind as there's no way that they could have imagined that this, the Messiah would actually be God. But it says here is he, he is the exact representation. John Owen said, Our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, hath the weight of the whole creation in his hand. He spoke it into existence, and by his hand he maintains it. Luther said, even the baby in the manger held the universe in check. And by the way, he is not just the author and perfecter of your faith. He is the very author of the scriptures that were given to the prophets. But he's not only superior to the prophets, he's superior to the angels. Now this is interesting because in first century Judaism, you had extra-biblical commentary on Scripture, the Babylonian Talmud and the Mishnah oral commentary that added a lot, explained tradition, and had been raised to the level of Scripture. And in these writings, there was a lot about angels and about rank, and about how, you know, um, as created beings, they were to be venerated. Christ says no. I mean, uh, the author says no, Christ is superior. He created the angels. And then he gets personal in chapter 3 with the introduction of Moses. And rather than discounting Moses, their most revered patriarch, he says Christ is better. It's reminiscent of Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He goes on to explain that, that Moses, he was a great guy, but he was faithful as a servant. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer, he's the Son. Can you see the difference? Why would you go back to something lesser? And in chapter 3, verse 7, we see a warning. Anytime you see the block lettering, that's an Old Testament direct quotation. This is from Psalm 95. I want to read it to you, and then I want to explain some of the illustration that we're going to see in Hebrews. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In the same way, Christ is portrayed as the ultimate high priest. And he's going to use that, that illustration, that picture over and over again. The author of the Hebrews is also going to illustrate our salvation. That that justification is unconditional. And he's going to use the picture of the exodus. That God saved you out of slavery and out of the land of Egypt. And then he puts you on a journey. And it's through this journey where the Israelites hardened their hearts and they never made it to the promised land. And what he's going to use here is a picture of your salvation, your exodus from slavery was never real if you do not continue to the promised land. He then talks about going from the superiority of Christ's person to his work. He's going to talk about how he's an ultimate high priest, chapter 4 through 7, the ultimate covenant, chapter 8, and the ultimate sanctuary and sacrifice, chapters 9 and part of 10. The ultimate high priest, I think this was probably best explained in the sermon last week, though we never heard that sermon, right? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained himself. I think he took the Torah, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and I think he explained over and over again to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, the sacrificial system, what the high priest functioned as, how that was a picture of what the Messiah would be how the sacrifices over and over again were fulfilled ultimately on the cross. I think he explained Passover. He's also going to talk about the ultimate covenant. He quotes Jeremiah 31. We know this well. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And what's the difference in this covenant? Is it rote obedience? Is it, is it law written on stone? Is it, a, is it something to show us that we could never obtain the standard that God requires? Or is it a law that is written on their, what? Hearts. 
You think there's a connection there? The new covenant with the law written on hearts of men. Do not harden your heart as they did in Meribah. The transition spells itself in chapter 8, verse 1. The author even says, Now the main point is this, that we have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. We're going to say that the old covenant was just, there were pictures and shadows of what is to come. But the new covenant, it is exemplified in heaven with Christ ministering as the high priest, the perfect mediator. And we're going to see chapters 9 and 10, the ultimate sanctuary and sacrifice. McDonald says it this way, The tabernacle system was symbolic for the present time, a picture of something better to come. It was an imperfect representation of Christ's perfect work. But now Christ ministers daily in the true sanctuary, the eternal house of God, where He is our mediator. There is what? One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is this high priest that ministers daily because He knows your weaknesses. He knows every hair on your head. He knows what you're dealing with. And it is that grace that has saved you is is the same grace that will persevere and carry you through. The devotional nature of this book is off the charts. And for someone to say, well, I don't know, I'm not so into doctrine, I'm more into devotion. We're like, well, you see them come together in this book. And frankly, you cannot have the level of devotion without this level of doctrine. It's just rich. Let's look at the second part, the practical. Okay, understanding all this, who Jesus is, who he really is and what he's done. Now stay the course. Now if he just left us there, it'd be difficult. Because I'd be like, okay, my faith is strengthened, I'm excited, but, but I need the practical. Tell, tell me how, tell me what to do. Turn to chapter 10 with me real quickly. Verse 19, therefore, in light of all that's been said, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, you hear that finality, you hear in there the, the ultimate work, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, therefore, in light of understanding that you don't want to go back to this old system that had to be replicated, that Jesus has fulfilled it all, understanding this, watch this, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He starts off by saying, let me show you how to stay the course 
with assurance of your faith. Yes, we know that we are saved. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. We know we're saved because we believe in a body of doctrine and that has traveled the 18 inches from our head to our heart. But guess what? There's also a subjective way to know that we are genuine believers. We look at our lives and we see progression. We say it here a lot of times, we sin less but it stinks more. We see the Lord working in our lives that, that when we start to drift, He pursues us, He disciplines us, He brings us back. He gives us faith that is otherworldly. He gives us assurance to help us stay the course. He also gives us endurance. But right before he talks about endurance, he inserts chapter 11 there. It's like he's so kind to illustrate it. And he says, I've just talked about assurance. Now let me give you some pictures. And if you know anything, if you've read the Hall of Faith, you got some squirrely dudes in there, don't you? You got guys like Samson and Jacob. Jacob, really? And Isaac, all men with flaws, and yet those who persevered in their faith. Staying the course does not mean living in perfection, but living by faith. And then he moves into chapter 12. Building on assurance, you stay the course also with endurance. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is that which encumbers us? If we're running a race. What is, that, what is that overcoat of sin and things that encumber us, make it difficult to run? It's doubt. It's unbelief. It's like in James, where it talks about the waves of the surf driven and tossed by wind. James says, let him ask in faith without any doubting. Don't drift away, but run the race with endurance. Cast aside the doubt, fixing your eyes on Jesus. And then he follows up in verse 3. This time, using identification with our Lord encouraging them who are concerned about persecution. Consider Him, Jesus Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, or we might say, and drift away, and quit, and sit down on the track. No, 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 consider Christ. He has run the race. Our high priest has experienced the same and now gives us the strength to endure. And then he turns to us and he says, and you strengthen others. Verses 12 and 13, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight the paths for your feet so that the limb, which is the lamb, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's not going to leave us to just be satisfied or strengthened in our faith. He's going to tell us to do what? Strengthen others. Do you think that might be a reason, he says, to not forsake the assembling together? Because we need each other, right? Jerry Bridges says it well. 
koinonia, fellowship. It's not coffee and donuts. It's partnering with one another in their sanctification. It's God using you and using me to help each other grow in our faith. And then finally, he says to stay the course in love. And if you were ever tempted to write off this book as, as unduly difficult or those are hard words to understand, he just wraps it and consummates it here in love. Chapter 13. Let love of the brethren continue. And the writer urges believers to bear one another up, to help them along. Do not let them turn back, but encourage them all the more. Listen to this benediction. It's a sermon in and of itself. Now may the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Someone ought to make a song out of that. Peace is derived from our great shepherd. Who has already paid the price? It is finished. What sacrifices year after year could not do, Christ did. What's the worst thing that can happen to us? Paul said what? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Don't drift away. What did Christ say? No one who has put their hand to the plow and turned back, is fit for the kingdom. And then there's this final charge in verse 22. It's so interesting. It's, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. It's like he's saying, don't write this off. Don't blame not liking it on my delivery. Struggle well with it. Listen to it. Like a coach to his players, he's loving them enough to tell them hard truths and at the same time encourage them. Why? Because souls are on the line. He cares about their spiritual estate. He wants to see them one day in heaven. Let's just be real plain about this. Let me tell you what else this book is going to do for you. It's not going to only encourage your faith. That's a big part of it. It will give you such a passion for the lost and for the wondering that you will find yourself on your knees consumed with other people's spiritual estate entreating the Lord for it, and then spending time with them to help them grow in Christ. You can't not do it. Understanding these truths and understanding that it's been done for you. This is the message. This is the book that American Christians need to hear now more than ever, especially in light of a pandemic where people aren't coming back to church. Many are drifting away. You know people. Every single person in here knows someone who is drifting. 
who's not holding fast. Maybe you are tempted yourself. And whether it's like Demas having loved this present world, or the fear of a pandemic, or the fear of culture, all of us need help in staying the course. All of us need what this book offers most, Christology. We need to understand better who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Remember, worship is all that I am responding to all that I know of Him. What do you bet that knowing more about Jesus Christ is going to deepen our worship, right? Our faith is only as good as the object of our faith. So here's the question that I want to leave you with. Do you want to hold fast and not drift? Do you want to know Jesus more deeply? Do you realize that anything you are dealing with is answered by knowing Christ better? So let's study Jesus. Amen? A name above all names. Gracious Father, we come before you, before the throne of grace, with great confidence that our high priest is mediating for us. And it is through His person and work that You have graciously chosen to not only redeem us, but to sanctify us daily until we arrive at that promised land. And so I pray that You would keep us from drifting and it would be a direct result of us deepening in our understanding and worship of Jesus Christ. And may it not end there, Lord, but give us such a passion and a love for the lost and a love for others who are drifting because you have given us Christ's church to do life together. May your name be honored in this series and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. 